The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. watched a video that moved me to tears. It was directed towards men, lifting them up and thanking them. It was shot and scored to seem supportive and inspirational, and it proclaimed we believe in the best in men, as it graciously encouraged men to continue the good work in standing up against bullying and harassment and setting a good example for young boys who are the men of the future. There was only one problem with the video. Near the start, it used the words toxic masculinity. And social media erupted in a furor. The internet blossomed out into think pieces, and people genuinely watched the video and came away feeling matronized at best, and at worst made to feel guilty just for having a Y chromosome. The only explanation I can think of for the viral infamy of the Gillette ad is that for many people, toxic masculinity is a trigger phrase so strong that it can drown out literally everything else. For for many, especially conservatives and or Christians. Toxic masculinity is a weapon invented um, by feminists to discredit all manhood. Yet that quite clearly was not what the Gillette ad was trying to say. Taken on its own terms, it was intended to be inspiring, encouraging and supportive of masculinity. So what went wrong? I mean, let's recap here. You have a multi-million dollar corporation producing a major video aimed or ostensibly aimed at men, and it uses a two-word phrase that results in thousands declaring a boycott on their products. I mean, it's kind of unlikely that the Gillette board members got together and said, hey, how can we insult half of the human race? It's a lot more likely that they very cynically sat down to create something that was going to be wildly controversial, or that the ad is not in fact aimed at men, but at women who Let's face it, we're always going to prefer to shave our legs with products that aren't cool with sexual harassment. But the fact remains that even if this was a cynical shock gambit, the ad still needed plausible deniability. After all, the vast majority of women, even the vast majority of women who prefer not to be sexually harassed, love and respect and would never want to belittle the men in their lives. Even if it briefly used some controversial language, I mean, goodness, I can't, I can't believe that Me Too is controversial, but there you go, welcome to 2019. Even if the terms the ad used were open to misunderstanding, the ad still needed to be, by and large, genuinely supportive of men. For this gambit to work at all, toxic masculinity needs, plausibly, to mean something other than all men are garbage and the world would be better off without them. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Welcome back to the Monstrous Regiment. I'm Susanna Rountree, and today we'll be defining toxic masculinity, debating the concepts it was invented to describe, and asking whether the term and the reasoning behind it are useful for Christians. So, what is the definition of toxic masculinity? One trap I think a lot of people fall into when it comes to defining this and similar terms is to say, one, don't use this term, it's their term, it's a worldly term, and two, this is what it means don't listen to how they define it. 
Well, you can't have it both ways. If it's their term, they get to define it. What I see people doing is defining the term without regard to its actual meaning, and then complaining when it is used that it means whatever horrible definition they have themselves imbued it with. That's toddler behaviour, poking yourself in the eye with a stick and using it as evidence to tattle on your little brother. Which is not to say that there aren't some bad definitions of toxic masculinity out there. And in re researching this episode, I did come across a couple. We'll be discussing those later, but the vast majority of the definitions I've found are actually quite reasonable. For instance, the first place I went in order to define toxic masculinity was Urban Dictionary, which is a crowdsourced online resource defining slang words and phrases. Since Urban Dictionary defines terms according to their current cultural usage and is crowdsourced, I thought this would be the quickest and most accurate way to see what the phrase toxic masculinity means right now to the largest number of people. The very first definition is lengthy, but I'm going to read it in full. Toxic masculinity, a social science term that describes narrow, repressive types of ideas about the male gender role, that defines masculinity as exaggerated masculine traits like being violent, un unemotional, sexually aggressive, and so forth, also suggests that men who act too emotional, or maybe aren't violent enough, or don't do all of the things that real men do, can get their man card taken away. Now, pay attention to the next bit because it directly contradicts what you may have been told toxic masculinity means. Quote, Many people confuse the difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity. However, one can be masculine without having toxic masculinity. Some beliefs of toxic masculinity include that interactions between men and women always have to be competitive and not cooperative that men can never truly understand women, and that men and women can never just be friends. That real men need to be strong, and that showing emotion is a sign of weakness, unless it's anger that is considered okay. The idea that men can never be victims of abuse, and talking about it is shameful. The idea that real men always want sex, and are ready for it at any time. The idea that violence is the answer to everything, and that real men solve their problems through violence. The idea that men could never be single parents, and that men shouldn't be very interactive in their children's learning and development, that men should always be the dominant one in the relationship, or else he's a cuck. The idea that any interest in a range of things that are strictly considered feminine would be an emasculation of a guy. End quote. Although it could definitely be more carefully worded, it's quite clear that this definition does not view masculinity in itself as evil. It's also clear that this definition is what the Gillette ad had in mind as it encouraged men to stand up to aggressive or sexual bullying and harassment. By this definition, toxic masculinity is not masculinity proper, but rather a perversion of it. And for those who accept this definition, this is clear in the terminology used. One says toxic masculinity for the very same reason that one says acid rain as a specifier, because most rain is not acid, just as most masculinity is not toxic. There is just, this is just one definition of toxic masculinity, so I decided not to stop my research there. What other definitions sound similar? Well, see for yourself. In the video essay, What is Toxic Masculinity?, the YouTube channel, Pop Culture Detective, says, quote, Very broadly speaking, masculinity is a set of behaviours and practices that have traditionally been associated with men and manhood in our culture, and that includes both positive and negative things. Toxic masculinity, on the other hand, is a loose term that's used to refer to a subset of those behaviours which are harmful or destructive. It's often used as a sort of shorthand to describe behaviours linked to domination, humiliation, and control. 
It's marked by things like emotional detachment and hypercompetitiveness. It's also connected to the sexual objectification of women, as well as other predatory sexual behaviours. It's also linked very closely with aggression, intimidation and violence. The modifier toxic is used to highlight the fact that these behaviours carry with them some potentially serious and even deadly consequences. Much of this type of masculinity is relational, and as such, it's most it's mostly defined in opposition to anything culturally associated with women, which is why toxic masculinity is driven by this overwhelming fear of emasculation, that is, the fear of being perceived by others as feminine and therefore unmanly. Just to make sure there is no misunderstanding, he says, I want to make something absolutely clear. This term is not a condemnation of men or manhood. Because again, toxic masculinity only refers to a particular set of harmful actions and cultural practices, and none of those behaviours are inherent or biological traits of men. There's nothing toxic about just being a man, but some men do act in toxic ways. So in other words, toxic masculinity is not something that men are, rather it's something that some men do. End quote. I'm going to quote yet another YouTube video essayist, Lindsay Ellis. In her lengthy discussion of, of uh, the, the complex fields of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Ellis states, quote, I see a lot of confusion over this term, like people hear the term toxic masculinity and they think it just means that being a man is bad, which, deep beleaguered sigh. Seems like the most common point of contention is not the underlying concept, but the term itself. So if you don't like the term toxic masculinity, why don't you call it, I don't know, machismo no bueno, whatever. For now, toxic masculinity is the term we have, so that's the one I'm going to use. When we talk about toxic masculinity, the simplest way to describe it is men feeling the need to to prove their perceived masculinity through unhealthy means, harmful to others, but just as often harmful to themselves. These toxic elements are attached to attributes we as a culture tend to attach to masculinity, including, but not limited to, anger, being the strongest, ownage, eschewing emotional attachment. Toxic masculinity eschews attributes associated with femininity, things like emotional, vulnera emotional vulnerability, crying, giving a bleep about other people, and flowers. I say associated with because obviously everybody has all of these things in them. Women get angry and men like flowers. So the fact that little boys are taught from a very young age that they're not allowed to cry or that expressing emotion is unmanly, that is a part of toxic masculinity. End quote. Finally, and most concisely of all, Geek Feminism Wiki says, Toxic masculinity refers to the socially constructed attitudes that describe the masculine gender role as violent, unemotional, sexually aggressive, and so forth. Now... I've quoted all these definitions and explanations in order to avoid the trap I mentioned at the outset of this episode, that of defining toxic masculinity without reference to those who use it sincerely. By now, I think it should be clear that this is not a pejorative term des designed to discredit men. Indeed, all of the definitions I've quoted make it very clear that toxic masculinity is not inborn, but learned or more precisely, a subset of learned behaviours. And since toxic masculinity is rather a culturally expected ritual performance of masculinity than something inborn, biological or inherent, it should go without saying that women too can contribute to a culture of toxic masculinity. Mothers as well as fathers can shame their sons for showing vulnerability or perpetuate unbiblically rigid gender roles when it comes to either masculinity or femininity. Anyway, I think that this distinction between inborn masculinity and culturally expected rituals of masculinity is a very important one, 
As Christians, we should all agree that our masculinity and femininity is something imparted to us by God's created design, not something that we slap on top like a last-minute coat of paint. It is true that faithful Christian men who long to live in harmony with the created design will likely gravitate towards at least some of the cultural rituals that signify masculinity in the culture, while largely avoiding signifiers of rebellious or confused sexuality. But a Christian man will not mistake such cultural expressions such cultural expressions for biblical directives, nor will he fear that culturally designated signifiers of femininity might compromise his sexuality. The meaning of a man dancing around in a see-through shirt varies wildly depending on whether we're watching a rainbow parade or a Bollywood film. Either way, the Bible is silent on the topic. It nowhere tells us to dress only in the way approved by some internet-famous 21st century American pastor. Where God does give us strict commandments, we must, of course, obey them. As a woman, if I am to marry anyone, it ought to be a man rather than another woman. But that is still a function of my ontological design, not the be-all and end-all of it. I am still a woman, and still feminine, if I sleep with another woman, and that is the problem. Because I was specifically told that a woman should not do that. For that matter, I am still a woman, and still feminine, if I fail to marry a man and produce babies for a Christian man or woman. Masculinity and femininity is about living in loving harmony with the bodies God gave us. And the idea that we can somehow lose, compromise, or erase our masculinity or femininity through wearing the wrong kinds of clothing, through the strength of our emotions, or the pitch of our voice, has more to do with transgenderism than it does with biblical doctrine. Taken to the extreme, we find parents afraid to let their little boys play with dolls or bake cupcakes. True story, apparently a Christian women's podcast recently sanctioned cooking lessons for boys so long as they don't bake cupcakes. All of this out of a rather strange fear that our sexual identity depends on our ritual performance of gender roles. This is nothing less than a sort of sexual works righteousness. As always... We have no problem with ritual itself, with men enacting masculine behaviours and women enacting feminine behaviours, whatever those happen to be in your culture, but those things can only ever flow out of something that is already there, something that cannot itself be created by those gendered roles and rituals. To say that they can be is magic religion. But for more on this topic, please give our episodes on transgenderism and Christian witchcraft a listen. Here's another thing that I think emerges pretty clearly from the definitions I have quoted. All of these very careful definitions are presented because the people using the term toxic masculinity know that it is a heavily loaded term open to real or willful misrepresentation. While this misinterpretation is very easy to refute, the fact is that it does persist, and I have certainly found that using the term, even with careful definition, does does lead to stumbling blocks being placed before my listeners. When a term must be defined so carefully in order to escape misinterpretation, there's an excellent argument that we should rethink the term altogether. After all, if the purpose of language is to communicate, a term becomes useless if it throws up barriers to communication. So, do we need the term at all? To answer that question, let's talk about history and what it meant to be masculine at varying points in history. We've just identified certain elements of the definition of toxic masculinity, such as aggression, hypercompetitiveness, fear of appearing weak or feminine, and so on. Let's see where these things crop up in history, and how Christians have tended to respond. We'll start with the pagan world of antiquity. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that preaching the crucifixion of Jesus was unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. 
Why was this? Well, to the Greeks, the incarnation of Jesus was foolishness because the Greeks viewed the physical world as being inferior to the world of abstract ideas and perfect mathematical harmony. But the crucifixion was offensive too because the idea that God himself could humble himself to the shameful death of a common thief went against every pagan concept of heroism and divinity. Since Greeks believed that mortal men would experience a shadowy afterlife without memory, pleasure, or purpose, their highest standard for a hero or a god in this life was a life of glory, rage, and power. One's real um, chance at immortality came through living a remarkable life in the now. The opening lines of the Iliad read like this. Rage. Sing goddess, Achilles' rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds as Zeus's will was done. Begin with the clash between Agamemnon, the Greek warlord, and godlike Achilles. Now, in his book, Heroes of the City of Man, Peter Lightheart explains the worldview on display here like this, quote, Living and dying with glory, the hero is no longer a mere man, but has become eternal like the deathless gods. In its extreme form, a man guided by this ideal will devote his life to achieving a reputation for courage, strength, and bravery, and he will protect that reputation against all challenges. Just as the deathless gods are completely self-absorbed, so the consistent hero is concerned above all with his own name. The answer to the first question of the hero's catechism is, man's chief end is to glorify himself forever. Lightheart goes on to note that along with rage, revenge, and obsessive defense of one's own reputation, the heroic ideal also includes competitiveness. Quote, heroes do not even want their friends to surpass them in battle. So far, Pagan heroism is ticking off a lot of the toxic masculinity boxes. As you can imagine, pagan, pagan heroism was power religion on steroids. It was into this world that Jesus came to die on the cross. It was in this world that Christians raised up new heroes, like the Hebrews 11 saints, who were mocked, tortured, and pitiably killed, while humbly pursuing a better life beyond the grave. This was the scandal of the cross, that a god should become a weak and suffering man who served rather than lording it over others to the point that he allowed himself to be tortured and killed as a common criminal. And this was a totally foreign conception of heroism in a world that was completely under Lamech's spell. Remember the man in Genesis 4 who boasted that I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Lamech's sensitivity to insult is exactly the kind of thing the term toxic masculinity was coined to describe. Jesus rejected this whole paradigm, counselling his followers to turn the other cheek when someone slights them. Now don't forget that Lamech was making this boast to his two wives. Sexual aggression was another important aspect of pagan masculinity. In fact, in ancient Rome, sexual aggressive aggression was so foundational to Roman masculinity that almost the only limit on how a Roman paterfamilias could have sex was that he was always to be the aggressor. In his article, Three Awful Features of Roman Sexual Morality, Tim Challies explains, quote, Romans did not think in terms of sexual orientation. Rather, sexuality was tied to ideals of masculinity, male domination, and the adoption of the Greek pursuit of beauty. In the Roman mind, the strong took what they wanted to take. It was socially acceptable for a strong Roman male to have intercourse with men or women alike, provided he was the aggressor. It was looked down upon to play the female receptive role in homosexual liaisons. 
A real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. He would have sex with his slaves, whether they were male or female. He would visit prostitutes. He would have homosexual encounters, even while married. He would engage in pederasty. See below, even rape was generally acceptable, as long as he only raped people of a lower status. He was strong, muscular, and hard in both body and spirit. Society looked down on him only when he appeared weak or soft. In Tim Challey's quote. This was the world Jesus arrived in. In this world, Jesus voluntarily gave up the benefits of divinity to become a man. He chose to become weaker. He chose to serve. He chose to suffer and die. He chose not to lift a hand in his own defense. He died a virgin in mockery and shame for the sake of the weak and lost. Jesus was in the eyes of his world a schmuck. The only reason we don't still remember him that way is because his followers, empowered by his spirit, went on to change the world. As Christendom grew through late antiquity and the early to high Middle Ages, we see Jesus' paradigm of heroism come into sharp conflict with the old pagan model. New words and concepts started to appear in the vocabulary of this new world, many of them with theological roots. Words like pity, gentle, mercy, anguish, beauty, bounty, charity, comfort, compassion, courtesy, delicate, devotion, grace, honour, humble, passion, patience, peace, purity, and tender, all originated as theological terms that gradually filtered into the medieval vocabulary to create a new cultural mood of softness and tenderness. Owen Barfield says in his excellent book, History in English Words, a new element had entered into human relationships for which perhaps the best name that can be found is tenderness. And so, at any rate in the world of the imagination, children, as well as women, gradually became the objects of a new solicitude. Lyrical devotion to the Virgin Mary and to the infant Jesus had helped to evolve a vocabulary which could express, and thus partly create, a sentiment of tenderness towards all women and young children. End quote. If you've read a lot of medieval literature, as I have, you can actually watch this new element developing. For, for example, the old English poem, The Dream of the Rude, which is one of the earliest old English literary, literary works we have, works hard to depict Jesus as a hero in the pagan sense. Quote, the young hero stripped himself then, that was God Almighty, strong and resolute. He ascended onto the high gallows, brave in the sight of many there, since he wished to release mankind. Now, of course, this is a completely legitimate way of imagining Christ. We all believe in the victory of Jesus over sin and death. But it's very significant that as the Middle Ages reached its height and the gospel transformed culture, it became far more common to depict Jesus on the cross as weak, anguished, and helpless. By the late Middle Ages, this has begun to decline into a weird, sentimentalized, courtly love situation, with Jesus as a pining knight whose lover had had him tortured and beaten. But the point remains that it was now possible to imagine a new kind of hero, someone who suffered and died in the surface of others without regard to his own reputation. You didn't have to be a brave warrior anymore to be a hero. And if you were a brave warrior, you were celebrated more because of your willingness to suffer on behalf of others than because of your personal glory and destructiveness. Some of you may remember that in January this year, someone called Paul Maxwell, of something he grandiosely describes as the self-wire phenomenon, published a video, an accompanying article, claiming that women are more religious than men at the moment because in evangelical Christianity today, everything is, quote, orderly, neat, clean, and well-behaved, in a way that leaves no room for, quote, the chaos of masculinity from which man draws his power. I mean, good gravy, I wish some of these people would read Rush Dooney. Anyway... This idiot went on to say, quote, Men are more aggressive, more competent, and more straightforward. 
This didn't conflict at all with the cultural form of religion in the Middle Ages, other than that Christianity called men to live virtuous lives, which was enough of a challenge. <sighs> Thereby proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he doesn't know the very first thing about the cultural form of religion in the Middle Ages. So let me break it down for you. In 1097, Pope Urban II called the Knights of Europe to travel to Jerusalem to liberate the Eastern Church from the rule of the Muslim Turks. The response was staggering, far beyond anything that Pope Urban or Alexi Emperor Alexius Comnenus could possibly have imagined. Knights by the thousand took the cross, liquidated their assets, and set out on a dangerous journey from which many of them never expected to return. Why did they do this? Because for the thousand years leading up to that moment, there was no firm theory of just war. Knighthood was, in the eyes of medieval Christians, a sinful lifestyle, practically synonymous with damnation. It was a lifestyle marked by anger, extortion, violence, and lust. At the Council of Clermont, Pope Urban slammed them. Let those who in the past have been accustomed to spread private war so vilely among the faithful advance among the, against the infidels. Let those who were formerly brigands now become soldiers of Christ. And he was right on target. Count Raymond of Toulouse states his aims for going on crusade like this. For the redemption of my crimes and those of my parents, and for the honour and love of St. Giles, whom I have frequently offended by many kinds of injuries. Another knight, Nivello, described his knightly behaviour as atrociously tyrannical. Whenever the onset of knightly ferocity stirred me up, I used to descend on the aforesaid village, taking with me a troop of my knights and a crowd of my attendants, and against nature I would make over the goods of the men of St. Peter for food for my knights. One biographer wrote of one of the knights who went on crusade, Frequently, he burned with anxiety because the warfare he engaged in as a knight seemed contrary to the Lord's commands. The Lord, in fact, offered him, ordered him to offer the cheek that had been struck, together with his other cheek, to the striker. But secular knighthood did not spare the blood of relatives. The Lord urged him to give his tunic and his cloak as well to the man who would take them away. The needs of war impelled him to take from a man already despoiled of both whatever remained to him. And so, if ever that wise man could give himself up to repose, these contradictions deprived him of courage. Gubert of Nogent summed it up. There had been no previous hope that these would bear witness to their faith. The truth is that medieval knights were often little better than brigands lost in a series locked in a series of never-ending feuds. Things were so bad that the church teamed up with ordinary peasants in th a 300-year movement, the Peace and Truce of God, which was the first mass peace movement in history, in an attempt to restrict nightly violence and protect ordinary people from the local gangsters. Yes, the medieval church did look for ways to regulate and reconcile nightly behaviour with Christian ideals, such as the Crusades, and some solutions were eventually found, including the development of just war theory. But you would have to be either a complete ignoramus or a barefaced liar to say that masculine aggression and violence were happily accepted by medieval Christianity. The idea is ludicrous. But let's move on. In the Renaissance, and again in the Enlightenment, antiquity became fashionable again. The medievals had never really lost ancient pagan learning. On the contrary, they spent centuries discussing Plato and Aristotle, writing thoughtful commentaries that identified a lot of places where the ancient Greeks had got it wrong. 
The Renaissance was not so much a rediscovery of something that was lost as a rejection of the progress that had been made since, with thousands of medieval books being destroyed or lost. For more on this topic, read James Hannam's book, God's Philosophers. This regression, anyway, was compounded in the Enlightenment by a regression in the status of women. Now, apparently it's fashionable in certain places to decry the Enlightenment as a triumph of egalitarianism, and I want to make it clear that none of my problems with the Enlightenment have to do with whatever it may have achieved in terms of equality and liberty for the oppressed. The truth is, however, that this equality was not extended to women. As Rushdoony notes, the age of reason saw man as reason incarnate, and woman as, emotional, as emotion and will, and therefore inferior. For this reason, he notes, few things have depressed women more than did the Enlightenment, which turned women into an ornament and a helpless creature. A legal revolution brought about the diminished status of women, and he cites a 1947 study titled Modern Woman, the Lost Sex. And this is important to our topic, because it shows the origins of our cultural obsession with defining masculinity in opposition to femininity. For ancient Romans, men were hard and sexually aggressive, while women were soft and sexually vulnerable. For the Enlightenment, reason and nature, science and masculinity, were pitted against emotion and faith, art and femininity, and so again a man must safeguard his masculinity by staying on his side of the divide. One very clear example of Enlightenment masculinity was Frederick the Great, Emperor of Prussia from 1740 to 1786. Now, by the time that Frederick became Emperor, Prussia had already acquired a reputation for military strength. Frederick's great-grandfather believed that it was not diplomacy, but military power that had guaranteed Prussia's safety. Alliances, to be sure, are good, he said, but a force of one's own on which one can rely better. A ruler is treated with no consideration if he does not have troops and means of his own. This advice was taken to heart by his descendants. A king needs to be strong, said Frederick William I, who was also known as the soldier king. In order to be strong, he must have a good army. The importance of the military was one of the things that Frederick William I was able to beat into his son Frederick the Great. As a boy, young Frederick loved to visit his mother's palace where he would dress in soft clothes and curl his hair to play flute and lute duets with his beloved sister Wilhelmina. His father was outraged by this, and any other evidence of what he believed to be effeminacy, beating Frederick savagely when he caught him wearing gloves on a cold day or using a silver fork instead of steel. Young Frederick was taught little beyond religion, economics, and war. His father commanded his tutors, Infuse into my son a true love for the life of a soldier, and impress on him that as there is nothing in the world which can bring a prince renown and honour like the sword, so he would be a despised creature before all men if he did not love it and seek his sole glory therein. In one letter to Frederick, his father said, You know very well that I cannot abide an effeminate fellow who has no manly tastes, who cannot ride or shoot, is untidy in his personal habits, and wears his hair curled like a fool instead of cutting it. On one occasion, Frederick turned up to parade with his hair and clothes askew, and his father attacked him, throwing him to the ground, kicking him, dragging him by the hair in full view of the men. When he was finished, his father spat at him, Had I been so treated by my father, I would have blown my brains out, but this man has no honour. As his life worsened, Frederick turned in desperation to a new friend, Hans Hermann von Carter. Carter was a Prussian noble who also played the flute and painted. Frederick's sister suspected that Carter and her brother were lovers, but it wasn't this that brought down the king's wrath. 
After the two young men were discussing, were discovered plotting to escape Prussia together, an immense scandal erupted. Frederick's father seriously considered executing him. One morning, Frederick's guards asked him to follow them. Frederick believed he was going to be executed, but instead he watched in horror as Cutter was beheaded outside his window. Frederick was eventually able to win his way back into his father's good graces, win some toleration for his artistic pursuits, and succeed to the throne of Prussia, although he never showed much interest in women and never produced an heir. After his death, the Prussian crown passed to his nephew. As Prussia's power grew throughout the mid-19th century, a young royal couple of German ancestry began debating how best to encourage the growth of free and liberal democracies in Germany, rather than the military dictatorship that was transforming Prussia into a superpower. Most people could never dream of being so influential, but this couple happened to be Queen Victoria of England and her consort, Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. In 1858, Victoria and Albert's eldest child, Princess Vicky, married the heir to the Prussian throne. Vicky's marriage to Frederick III was a love match, and at first the plan seemed to be working as she and her parents persuaded Frederick to advocate for more freedom and a limited constitutional parliamentary government for Prussia. But Vicky and Frederick's view was in the minority at the militaristic Prussian court, and Frederick's father, Wilhelm I, was a staunch autocrat. In 1862, the Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck announced that the country's future would be assured not by Prussia's liberalism, but by Prussia's might. Quote, the great questions of the times will not be solved by speeches and majority decisions, but by iron and blood. Over the next decade, Prussia went to war against its neighbouring kingdoms, and in 1871, Wilhelm I was declared Kaiser of a new united Germany that ruled that was ruled semi-autocratically by the emperor himself. Its parliament a mere formality, unable to introduce legislation or to hold ministers accountable. Vicky's husband was now the heir to exactly the kind of Germany she had dedicated her life to preventing. Frederick was torn between his autocratic father and his liberal English wife. Vicky was despised and ignored at court. And worst of all, their eldest son rejected their liberal ideals and embraced his grandfather's autocratic politics. When Frederick III died of cancer within months of his own accession to the throne, Vicky was left to process her grief through a long, lonely, marginalised widowhood as she watched her son, Kaiser Wilhelm II, lead Europe step by step closer to war. Power now belongs to brute force and to cunning, she lamented, as Wilhelm ascended the throne of Germany. From the beginning, the future Kaiser Wilhelm II faced significant struggles in life. During a traumatic birth, he suffered nerve damage that resulted in a withered left arm, which by adulthood was six inches shorter than his right. Matters were made worse by the ghastly and painful remedies that were tried throughout the young heir's childhood. It's also possible that during his birth, Wilhelm may have suffered brain damage, and from a young age he was subject to violent fits of rage that frightened his mother. Vicky herself was a very exacting parent with high and unyielding standards of behaviour, but Wilhelm still didn't have to turn out the way he did. The fact was that Prussian social expectations for masculinity and monarchy, which we've already seen at work in the miserable early life of his ancestor Frederick II, wreaked havoc on Wilhelm as well. Miranda Carter explains, quote, In Germany, the dominance of and cultural fascination with the army pressed upon the Berlin court and predominant class a caricature hypermasculinity. In England, the aristocracy's insistence that they lead society by virtue of their virtue meant that they believed they must appear above reproach in everything. 
Too much was expected, too much forbidden. The conflict could be seen in Wilhelm himself. The imperative to be manly and soldierly all the time had turned him into a caricature and forced him to take refuge in periodic breakdowns. Today, as we read the letters of his frustrated royal relatives, it's easy to see Wilhelm as he was, a pitiable, absurd and hysterical figure. Certainly, historians have suggested that he showed all the signs of a narcissistic personality disorder, including arrogance, grandiose self-importance, a mammoth sense of entitlement, fantasies about unlimited success and power, a belief in his own unique brilliance, and so on. But as his, at his succession to the throne in 1888, Wilhelm seemed to be magnificently Prussian. He was young, martial, and energetic, and Prussian social expectations cannot be ex- cannot be blamed for Wilhelm's personal failings, but they did everything to harm and nothing to help. Thus, Wilhelm's propensity to uncontrolled rage was never checked. He was so terrified of appearing weak that his withered arm became a constant source of shame and insecurity, which he went to great lengths to conceal in photographs and portraits. His young cousins, the princesses of Hesse, complained that he was a controlling bully, and this was true. He flew into a violent rage when one of his sisters wanted to marry a prince who had one single non-royal ancestor, hysterical at the thought of diluting the magnificent Hohenzollern pedigree. When another sister, Sophie, who had married the heir to the throne of Greece, wanted to convert to Greek orthodoxy, Wilhelm flew into a rage and banned her from returning to Berlin to see her family. He learned to flatter his grandmother, Victoria, but shut his mother out of all influence, one of his younger brothers proclaiming that Imperial Prussia can never allow itself to be ruled by a woman. He was passionately passionately obsessed with the military, collecting equally useless uniforms and honorary military ranks from all over the world. He appeared in propaganda as a heroic warrior in uniform, wearing a fierce face, moustaches bristling, flanked by his six equally manly and equally uniformed sons. As the 19th century drew to a close, Wilhelm took took over more and more of the running of the German government, seeking yes-men and sycophants to act as his ministers. He was, by all accounts, a rather pitiful and deeply insecure man who strutted and postured in a desperate attempt to live up to his own image. He throws his weight about and fancies that others worship him, wrote Alexander III of Russia. So rage, controlling behaviour, fear of weakness, obsession with military glory, contempt of women and femininity... I admit that whenever I hear the words toxic masculinity, Kaiser Wilhelm II is the very first person I think of. But above all else, it was his hyper-competitiveness that drove Europe to the brink of war. At the time, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was being adopted as a political theory as well. The survival of the fittest was seen as something that applied to states and empires. Miranda Carter explains, The notion that countries must inevitably clash and fight for dominance had become a truism of the 1890s, given a spurious pseudoscientific credibility by theories of social Darwinism, which interpreted Darwin's phrase, the survival of the fittest, as the survival of the most aggressive rather than the most well-adapted. By extension, it had become an established cliché that an empire that didn't expand would find itself being torn apart by other circling imperial predators. In all the colonial and would-be colonial states, war had become legitimised as a test of national racial fitness and pronounced inevitable as a vital mode of natural selection by the idea of social Darwinism, which also, by no coincidence, legitimised the domination of backward and inferior races by advanced superior ones, end quote. Nobody embraced this ideology as wholeheartedly as Wilhelm II. Even his grandfather's empire-building chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, 
was appalled by what he called Wilhelm's lust for war. Woe to my poor grandchildren, he wrote towards the end of his life. By the late 1890s, Wilhelm was obsessed with building a navy which would be able to destroy the British navy, as well as grabbing more and more colonies in Africa to boost his imperial standing. When war actually did come in 1914, Wilhelm himself was aghast and tried to stop it. Nevertheless, it was his own unstable, impulsive and insecure behaviour over the previous decades which had precipitated the crisis to begin with. Constantly terrified that other European nations would turn on him, Wilhelm had resorted to constant posturing and sabre-rattling to keep them all at bay. In fact, his erratic behaviour offended the commoners of other nations and drove the other world powers into ever closer alliances against him. Meanwhile, Deborah Cadbury writes, quote, He seemed ever more autocratic to the point of instability. Suprema Lex, Regis Voluntas, the will of the king is the highest law, he wrote, on a visit to Munich, much to the concern of the Reichstag. Vicky recoiled from his absolutism, what she called his Caesarism, and his needlessly bellicose speeches proclaiming his desire to lead Germany to glory. It was as though his very identity had fused with heroic legends of old, stepping from some ancient Valhalla to defend his country against all slights and insults, whether actual, imaginary, or provoked by himself. And... End quote. And there we see the um, there we see the influence of the old pagan ideals again. Once again, I should note that there was much more than harmful social definitions of masculinity at work in Kaiser Wilhelm's disastrous life. Harsh upbringing, a personality disorder, imperial ambitions, social Darwinism, and monarchical absolutism all had major roles to play. But there's one thing that most of these elements have in common, power religion, the worship of strength for its own sake. When it comes down to it, the loose group of harmful behaviours we're discussing under the label of toxic masculinity are simply power religion applied to concepts of masculinity. This kind of behaviour, of course, did not go away in the 20th century or even in the 21st. In telling the stories of Wilhelm II and his great-great-great-great-uncle, Frederick II, I've merely chosen two of the most obvious examples I've come across. It's important to note that not all examples of this behaviour will be so clear-cut, since this is not an inborn trait that we're discussing, but certain types of behaviour which anyone can be involved in. My goal in giving these historical examples was to take the elements of the feminist definition of toxic masculinity and trace them through time together with the ways in which Christianity has already critiqued and rejected them. I differ with Peter Lightheart, for instance, in some very important respects, but in Heroes of the City of Man, he quite rightly identifies rage, hyper-competitiveness, aggression, and obsession with one's own glory as anti-Christian to the core. I am sure Lightheart would never use the term toxic masculinity, but whether he would or not, he still identifies those same behaviours as being harmful and unchristian. In other words, this is a real thing. This is a thing that happens, a thing that harms everyone, both male and female. And if that is so, then maybe we need a term for it. I want to be clear, I'm not wedded to the term toxic masculinity, especially not if it's going to be wildly misconstrued by those who hear it. I'm told that the New Testament scholar Rick Watts has proposed the term homeric masculinity as a substitute, and I've used that term on occasion myself, when speaking to people who will understand what I mean by it. That's the catch. Relatively few people today have read Homer and understand what pagan heroism was like. By comparison, the definition of toxic masculinity is freely available to anyone with five minutes and internet connection and an open mind. In the absence of a more accessible term, well, this is the one we have. 
All this said, it's important to note that the debate over toxic masculinity is not simply a debate over the meaning of the term, or over whether and just how open the term is to misunderstanding. A while ago, I quoted the number one most highly voted definition of toxic masculinity on the Urban Dictionary, a feminist definition. Now, let me quote number two, which is just as obviously meninist. Toxic masculinity, any male action that doesn't conform to liberal ideals of what a man should be in today's society. If he isn't sensitive and emotional and docile, he is accused of toxic masculinity. Whereas these people used to be known as bleeps or even bloops, see also blip, now they are blamed for being a product of the male-driven society. End quote. No, those bleeps and blips weren't there in the original. I just see no reason to repeat the foul language used. You can look it up on Urban Dictionary if you really want to, but let me just say two things. The definition seems to be looking back to some better time when evil or arrogant men were described only using curse words. By doing so, he is refusing me and anyone else who prefers not to use curse words, which is traditionally women, the right to criticise a man at all. Additionally, he is ignoring several facts about the feminist definition of toxic masculinity. For instance, it is not just about nasty men, not just about individual jerks or yokels, but about systemic social expectations that men must and will be jerks or yokels. Similarly, he ignores the fact that the feminist definition does not necessarily blame a male-driven society for toxic masculinity, because inherent in the feminist criticism of toxic masculinity is the fact that toxic masculinity harms men. In its favour, this hostile de definition of tos toxic masculinity realises that the feminist definition does not paint all masculinity as toxic, and it doesn't try to argue that. Rather, it presents a slightly more sophisticated argument that in the modern world, a liberal conspiracy has created a new emasculated ideal of manhood that involves being sensitive, emotional, and docile. And I do think that in this he has correctly identified the whole point. During the Gillette controversy, there were large numbers of people who were genuinely offended by the idea that boys shouldn't beat each other up in order to resolve their conflicts, or that strange men shouldn't follow women in the street. My co-host, Monstrous Kate Robinson, observed, quote, One of the most alarming things I saw in the wake of the commercial was a guy complaining that the man following women down the street to harass them was behaving in a perfectly acceptable way, while the friend who stopped him was a scold. In other words, the debate is not truly about terminology, it is about masculinity. How do we define what it means to be a man? By what standard do we say that some traditionally masculine behaviours are good and others are bad? While I came across some very good feminist dis discussions of toxic masculinity during my research for this episode, I did come across one that was pretty bad. A Bustle article titled Six Harmful Effects of Toxic Masculinity began by implying that all aspects of Western masculinity are toxic by definition, and continued thus. Since masculinity and femininity don't have any inherent meaning, a healthy masculinity or femininity is one you get to define or not identify with at all because it doesn't have to mean anything to you if you don't want it to. End quote. On the contrary, it should be obvious to every Christian that, many, that masculinity and femininity is part of God's creation plan for this world, and as such, they definitely do have inherent meaning. As we have said on this podcast before, masculinity and feminism is far more than simply social norms and ritual performance. Marriage as a covenant between one man and one woman, for instance, is not simply a social norm, it's a divine commandment. As Christians, it is to scripture that we must look to determine what true masculinity looks like. Does it look sensitive, emotional, and docile, or does it look hyper-competitive, vainglorious, and bisexually and violently aggressive? 
By this time, I think the answer should be obvious. Certainly, scripture depicts great men of the faith as being mighty men and warriors. Christianity is not a pacifist religion, and it does recognize a limited place for violence, aggression, and competition. Jesus himself whipped the money changers out of the temple, but he did it for his father's sake, not for his own glory. He entered Jerusalem not on a lordly war charger, but on a humble and lowly ass. He wept openly on multiple occasions. He submitted himself to a shameful death on the cross. He died for his bride. He washed feet. Women were his respected friends. And he never seemed to worry he'd get girl cooties from them. On one occasion, he even described himself as a mother hen. In the Old Testament, David, a man of war, showed no discomfort with weeping and despairing or dancing in wild joy. In the New Testament, Paul frequently shares about his physical infirmities, and twice he even says that he glories in his infirmities. In Philippians, Paul tells us, Paul tells men and women alike to let our gentleness or graciousness or forbearance be evident to all. Trans translations differ on the precise wording. From beginning to end, the Bible refuses to shame men for being infirm, emotional, meek, or humble. The highest ideal is not that of a vainglorious warrior, but that of a humble and suffering servant. And yet somehow, not only do many Christian would-be leaders continue to embrace a pagan view of masculinity in defiance of the clear teaching of scripture, but they use these unbiblical requirements to bind heavy burdens on their followers. Recently, for instance, J.D. Hall was seen rebuking a woman on Facebook for publicly admitting that her husband was asthmatic and gluten intolerant when she asked, are you more of a man than him because you're not allergic to gluten or have asthma? He responded without qualification, yes. This, this is toxic masculinity in the Christian church in 2019, and instead of repenting for his own ungodly contempt of the weak, this man took it upon himself to rebuke a woman for supposedly disrespecting her husband, when the only disrespect in the picture was his own. It's insane. But the burdens get heavier than this. See, the problem is that if a Christian defines masculinity and femininity solely as inactive behavior, it becomes, as i mentioned previously, a form of sexual works righteousness. On Twitter several months ago, Tim Bailey wrote, quote, Jesus commanded, jo <clears throat> sorry, Jesus commended John the Baptist for not wearing soft man clothes. The Apostle Paul warned soft men will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's evil about soft man? It's an oxymoron. Soft man is a self-contradiction. Hashtag man up. Now, it should be blindingly obvious to the meanest intellect that when the Apostle Paul warned that the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God, he was referring to those who unrepentantly engaged in homosexual acts, not to men who like to be comfortable and can afford it in a pre-modern society. Yet Bailey willfully equates the two. In another tweet, he even embraced those Roman ethics we were talking about recently, Encouraging Christian men to be hard like those Romans who weren't ashamed of sodomizing little boys, only of being sodomized. To recap then, we literally have a Christian pastor publicly proclaiming that wearing comfortable clothes will send you to hell, while encouraging Christian men to admire Roman pagans for considering it glorious to rape little boys. But of course, shameful to be a male victim of rape. This too is toxic masculinity, only now it's been raised to the level of heresy. His teaching implies that if men don't com conform to a hard hypermasculinity, they can and will lose their salvation. This is a gospel issue, and we cannot afford to compromise on it. A Christian man cannot lose his salvation by becoming the victim of sexual assault. We can't equate cultural markers of effeminacy with homosexual behaviour. These attitudes are far from being niche within the reformed world. 
Douglas Wilson seems to be increasingly attracting, if not courting, an extreme Mennonist audience, and his recent podcast series Man Rampant contains sessions denouncing empathy as a sin and servant leadership as a lie. Yes, really. Then John MacArthur was videoed earlier this month complaining that having women in leadership positions makes men weak. Well, of course, it's a nonsensical thing to say. Just ask the great Elizabethan explorers and playwrights and poets, Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh and Philip Sidney and Edmund Spencer, whether they thought that having a woman on the throne made them weak. Edmund Spencer even wrote a whole passage into the Fairy Queen denying this fact. <clears throat> You'd end up with a foot of steel in your guts, and Elizabeth I wasn't even modelling Christ-like servant leadership. But let's concede, just for a moment, that this is true. That having a woman in leadership does make men weak. Weak like Christ, who chose to become a man and submit to a painful death. Weak like Paul, who boasted that he had become weak in order to gain the weak. In scripture, weakness is not a source of shame, but the reason why the strong should serve. When the Bible talks about what it means to be a man, it very rarely speaks of strength or power, but rather maturity, discretion, and the fruits of the Spirit which are love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. This is mature masculinity, the pattern which young men must emulate. Parenthetically, when pursued by a woman, it is also mature femininity. But if this sounds to you like sensitivity, docility, and emotion unbecoming a man, well, your argument is not with me, it's with God. Three years ago, I was warned by a friend that the dangerous red pill Mennonist ideology I had stumbled across on the darker corners of the internet might be set to grow, taking over from feminism as the default view of the sexes in westernized culture. With people like Paul Maxwell, Tim Bailey, and John MacArthur spouting such views, I'm alarmed to note that this prediction seems to be coming true, and much faster than I expected. I don't know what has tempted so many men, including some people I once respected, to start aff affirming a model of masculinity with which Christianity has always been at war. But I do know this, no matter what label we want to slap on this phenomenon, whether toxic masculinity or Homeric masculinity or pagan heroism, the church must take a stand on the pure message of the gospel if she is to remain the church. Philippians 2 verses 3 to 10 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of of the cross wherefore god also hath highly exalted him membership in christ's church demands a different paradigm of behavior a paradigm modeled after christ not after ajax or achilles i can't put it any better than saint augustine did in the city of god quote we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried to the point of contempt for self. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men. The latter finds its highest glory in God, the witness of a good conscience. 
The earthly lifts up its head in its own glory. The heavenly city says to its God, My glory, you lift up my head. In the former, the lust for domination lords it over its princes as over the nations it subjugates. In the other, both those put in authority and those subject to them serve one another in love, the rulers by their counsel, the subjects by obedience. The one city loves its own strength, shown in its powerful leaders. The other says to its God, I will love you, my Lord, my strength. So... Is toxic masculinity a legitimate or even a helpful term? Well, that depends on a lot of things. While I'm not wedded to the term, I think I've demonstrated that it was coined to describe and discuss a very real and very damaging phenomenon that goes all the way back to Lamech in Genesis. As Christians, it's our duty to bring God's word to bear on all of life. When Christian pastors stand up to promote a perverted and deeply anti-Christian ideal of masculinity, when would-be celebrities lie about church history in an attempt to promote neo-pagan psychobabble, when Christian men believe and loudly state that harassing women is normal and healthy male behavior, then it doesn't really matter what label we use as long as we're taking the hammer of God's word to the idols of power. As a monstrous regiment, we want to encourage and edify the men around us, not tear them down. So let me finish with this message to our brothers in Christ. Men, our respect for you comes from your service to the people of God, from your self-restraint, kindness, gentleness, and goodness, rather than from your power, aggression, or capacity for violence. Our respect for you is not conditional on your health, your musculature, your money, your looks, or your status. It cannot be lost through weakness or squandered through a failure to perform certain masculine rituals. Thank you for treating us as people, for talking to us as sisters, for being open and vulnerable with us, for showing us your feelings and sharing your dreams. Thank you not just for being hard when we needed you to be hard, but also for being soft when we needed you to be soft. Thank you not just for teaching us when we needed it, but also for listening and learning when we spoke. We love you. I'm Susanna Roundtree for The Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.